You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you have a Bible, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Um, as we continue our series, Life Under the Sun, where we're just uh, working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes and we're learning together how to not just uh, survive, but thrive in life under the sun. Today we're going to be in uh, verse 7. I'll read through verse 16. If you will, I want to invite you to stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll read this together. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, as always, by the way, our notes for the message today are on the Version Bible app. If that interests you, you can grab those there. Verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of all this enjoyment? This too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strand is not equally broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come, may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. And there was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you so much for those who are here in person, those who are online. We thank you for this word that you've given us, which we believe is active and living. Um, I pray that you would now uh, take these words, that you would minister to every heart appropriately um, in a way that, that will be for their good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. Well, according to the Survey Center on American Life, the number of Americans who say they have no close friends has quadrupled since the 1990s. 54% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling that no one knows them well. And up to 40% of Americans have zero close friends or confidants. Um, And that's not just true for people out there. That's true for people in here. And it's even true for pastors. I read a stat recently that was published by an organization called Practical Shepherd, um, which is this this ministry devoted to the care of pastors. And according to the research, what they recently found is that 70% of pastors do not have someone they consider to be a close friend. Needless to say, uh, we are living right now in a loneliness epidemic that none of us are immune to. And this is a problem. Because though silence and solitude uh, is a good thing, loneliness and isolation is deadly. And that's not an overstatement. Um, Professor and author Brene Brown, I know maybe you're familiar with her, listen to her podcast. She cites in a study that living with air pollution increases your odds of dying early by 5%. Living with obesity, 20%. Excessive drinking, 30%. 
Living with loneliness increases our odds of dying early by 45%. Think about that for a moment. That the length and the quality of your life, and not just emotionally, relationally, but even physically, the length and quality of your life is directly proportional to the degree in which you spend your life in community and out of isolation, knowing and being known. And this should not come as a surprise to us because thousands of years before this study came out in Genesis 2.18, what did God say? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. Keep in mind, God said this before sin ever entered the picture. Even in paradise, when everything was rhythmic and, and beautiful, before the world was fractured by sin, God still said, it is not good for man to live in isolation. And yet, by and large, what every stat, what every survey says is that in America, we are more lonely and isolated than ever before. And I think there are many reasons for why this might be. Um, here are just five reasons for why I see, and sociologists see a decline of community in America. Uh, one of them is technology. Uh, you remember before the air conditioner was invented, if people wanted to get cool, they'd go outside, had to be around their neighbors, and the air conditioner came in, and we all just stayed inside, or we had to heat, all that. Um, then we had the garage invented. Remember that? Like, there used to be a time where you'd pull up, and you actually had to talk to your neighbors. Now you can pull into your garage, and you can actually shut the door before you ever even get out of your car, so you don't have to talk to anybody. Um, then you had this thing called the answer machine that was invented. Before the answer machine, when someone called, if you wanted to know who it was, you actually had to pick it up and talk to the person. But then when the answer machine came out, it was great because you'd let the machine get it. And if you didn't want to talk to them, it's like, oh, we're not home. But if you did want to talk to them, you're like, oh, you'd pick it up like, oh, I was outside mowing the yard, just heard it ring, like, it's so good to talk to you, right? Then you had the caller ID that came out. Then we had cell phones. And now I don't even have to talk to you if I don't want to. I just text you. That's way easier. Um, and then we had the iPhone or the smartphone, which completely changed the game. I read an article yesterday that said that humans at one time used to be 99% present. The TV knocked that down to 85%. Computers knocked it down to 75%. And now thanks to the iPhone or the smartphone, it says we are now 50% present at best all the time. And we know that's true. I mean, how hard has it been for you, even since you've been in this room, to not check your phone? I mean, it is constantly pulling our attention away from other people. So technology has aided in the decline of community. Another reason is social media. Uh, that has affected our friendships. Um, every Wednesday at 12 o'clock, you guys know, I think, uh, that we, uh, anybody is, is welcome to come and join us right out here in the foyer. We do like what we call team sermon prep, which we read the text that I'll be preaching that week. And then we kind of talk together about what do we believe God is wanting to say to this people this week in a lot of this text. And one of the ladies who showed up this week uh, talked about a very difficult time in her life where her father had passed away. And she said that it was a very sad time, a very painful time. And she said, I had 70 people comment on my Facebook page and say, I'm praying for you. But not one person called and prayed for me. So I had a lot of people who said, I'm thinking of you. But only one person, she said, thought of me enough to actually come by. And then she said that, she said, I actually reached out to a, to a lady that I thought was a close friend of mine who never even contacted me when my dad passed away. And I said, hey, this really hurt my feelings when you didn't reach out to me. And she said, oh, oh, oh. I, the reason I didn't reach out to you is I saw you had all these comments on Facebook and I just thought, man, you have so many friends. I don't want to overwhelm you by being just another person that reaches out. And you see, that's what social media does. It, it, it gives us this false sense of community. It, it basically takes, you know, real and authentic relationships and it replaces it with a thousand one inch deep relationships. 
Where, where now we have maybe lots of followers, but no real friends. We have thousands of people who maybe kind of know us from a distance or kind of know this filtered version of us, but they don't really know the real us. And by the way, that's not going away anytime soon. Has anybody heard of Metaverse yet? Anybody in here? Okay, a few of you, like go Google it later. It's Mark Zuckerberg who started Facebook. They're now starting this literally virtual world that um, people are telling us within 20 years, they think that virtual is going to replace the physical, that everything that we need to do, we can do now digitally rather than in person. It's crazy. Just go Google it later. There's a whole video that came out on it. It's nuts. But social media, like the digital world, that has certainly aided in the decline of community. Another big reason I think we fail to develop deep relationships is a fear of vulnerability. Again, Brene Brown says it like this in her book, Daring Greatly. The reason we fail to develop healthy relationships is because we have a fear of vulnerability. We have a fear of taking off our armor, a fear of not measuring up, a fear of getting hurt, a fear of criticism and conflict, a fear of rejection and failure. Brown says this is what isolates many of us. It's the inability to maintain tough, vulnerable relationships, which as a result, again, keep us from knowing and being known. A fourth reason I think we see a decline in friendship in our society is unrealistic expectations. You know, Brennan Manning once referred to the church that the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital bed for sinners. I want you to think about that. You know what that means? That means that, that, that to, to expect people in the church to be consistently healthy is like sitting in a waiting room and expecting the people there to be consistently healthy. Like, like it's a hospital bed for sinners. Like when you look around, like nobody here has arrived. We all still have issues. We all have baggage. We all have trauma that we're dealing with. We all have different sins and issues inside of us. And so a lot of times, though, what I think we do is we go up to somebody and we expect them to do for us what only Jesus can do for us. And when they don't live up to our high expectations, we just say, okay, you're the problem. I'm just going to go find another friend. Or we just say, forget it. Like, I've been hurt so much in it, I'm just not going to get back in community. We have unrealistic expectations. Lastly, what I would say is this. Um, the reason we don't develop deep friendships is because we just don't think we need them. I thought about putting busy on here as a reason why, but that's not it. We make time for anything that's important to us. The reason we don't make time for friendships is, let's be honest, we don't think we need them. Despite the fact we were created by a relational God for relationships, despite the fact that Jesus himself needed friends, we think that we are not as needy as a son of God, and so we just don't pursue friendships. And because the teacher knows that this is deadly, again, not just relationally and emotionally, but also spiritually, physically, because he knows that we can never find meaning and fulfillment in life under the sun apart from healthy relationships, he takes chapter four to talk about the importance of friendship. And he does so first, if you look back in our text, by telling us a story about a lonely man. In verse 7, he says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. And so this is a man who didn't see his need for friendship. I don't need friendship, and I don't know why that is. Like, like he, he just thought, you know what? Like, like if I'm going to get fulfillment, if I'm going to get satisfaction, like more than I need relationships, I just need to work really hard. Like, like I need to, you know, make sure I can pile a bunch of wealth. I get a bunch of stuff. And because he never stopped to ask the question, why am I working so hard? And who am I working for? The teacher says he comes to the end of his life with lots of possessions, but no people. He climbs the ladder. He accomplishes great things, 
but he leaves all of his friends and family behind in the process. And according to the teacher, he says, this is absolutely meaningless. This is hevel. Remember, that's the word he uses. This is smoke. This is vapor. Because in the end, who cares how much stuff you have if you don't have any friends to enjoy it with? I mean, what the teacher is telling us here is you can have all the money in the world. You can have a mansion. You can have new cars. You can win the Employee of the Year award. You can have an impressive resume. You can have a a list of great accomplishments and trophies. But in the end, if you don't have deep friendships, you're empty and you're miserable. He says you will find yourself maybe on top of this mountain. You work so hard to climb and you'll be standing there all alone. Anybody in here know who holds the record for the highest career batting average in Major League Baseball? Anybody know? Very good. Randy got it. Ty Cobb. Let me tell you about Ty Cobb. This man was an incredible competitor. Uh, His teammates said that he had a ferocious will to succeed. Some say he's the greatest baseball player to ever live. At one point, he held 90 Major League Baseball records. 90. Think about that. Um, he still has many records today, including the highest career batting average, most steals at home, most batting titles. He died with a net worth of over $200 million. Think about what that would be equal to today. He died back in the 60s. And on his deathbed, audibly and out loud, here's what he said. I wish I had more friends. He had millions in the bank account, but at his funeral, three people showed up. That's not even enough to carry his dead body in and out of the room in the box that he was in. Ty Cobb won at baseball, but he lost at life. You know why Ty Cobb won at baseball, by the way? Because he wanted it so bad. He, He wanted to win. He wanted to succeed. He wanted to compete. He wanted those titles. He wanted to hold all of these records so that 60 years after his death, one person in Paragould, Arkansas, could know that he had the best batting average. And I share that with you just to say this. Listen, most of you, you're never going to be the best at anything. I hate to break it to you, okay? And I won't either. There is almost always going to be somebody better than you at whatever it is you're trying to be the best at. But even if you could be the best, what cost are you willing to pay to get there? The teacher says, I saw a man who had a lot of money, had a lot of possessions. If you looked at his life, you would have envied him. But at the end of the day, he discovered it was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. He was a millionaire and miserable. Because at the end of the day, though he had a fortune, he had no friends. And you see, because the, because he, he, you know, friendship is so important, what the teacher wants us to do is he wants to make sure that we don't make the same mistake. And so if you look in verses 9 through 12, what he begins to, to point us to are these benefits to friendship. And according to the teacher, he says there are four big benefits to having friends. If you look in verse 9, he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. One of the benefits of friendship, of living in community, is what he's saying here, is you can be more productive. Like you can actually get more stuff done with a friend than you can without a friend, which therefore allows you to receive a greater return for your labor. And though this is kind of a silly example, I can, I can, um, I think I can share it and, and, and help you think about it this way. Um, nine years ago, I was in my backyard playing a wiffle ball home run derby with Murray Watts, who used to be in our church, played double-A uh, ball for the Royals. One of the many times I literally beat uh, Murray at home run derby, by the way. Um, and so many of you remember MC Olympics. You saw it happen. And so, but anyways, um, 
I'm back in the backyard playing Homer Derby with Murray Watts and Luke Moore. Somebody hits a ball, I can't remember, a wiffle ball on my uh, roof, and I didn't have a ladder at the time. Um, trying to get it with a broom. We all kind of tried. And then finally, Murray was like, I got an idea. Luke, get on my shoulders. And so I think I've got a picture of this. There they are. Luke gets on there. You can see he grabs the ball with ease. Why? Because two are better than one. Rather than us trying to work hard on our own, when you put two together, you become more productive. You get to get a greater return for your labor. That's the first thing that he says is a benefit of friendship. Another thing he goes on to say is when you have a friend, not only can you be more productive, but a good friend is someone who provides care for you. If you look in verse 10, he says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. You guys remember this old commercial? I think I got a a picture of this uh, back in the early 90s. Do we have it? Remember that? Y'all remember this lady? I've fallen and I can't get up. Why can't she get up? Nobody's there. She doesn't have any friends. She's all alone. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is just trying to say. It's like, man, that's a picture of someone who doesn't have friends. Guys, we are all going to fall. <laughs> we are all going to fall. And not just physically, but we're all going to even times, listen, fall spiritually. And a true friend is not someone who rubs your face in the dirt when you fall. A true friend is not someone who condemns you. They don't kick you while you're down. They don't talk bad about you behind your back, right? They don't leave you there. A good friend is someone who comes alongside you and helps you out of the pit. They care for you, not if, but when you fall. Next, he goes on to verse 11, and he says, A good friend is only someone who cares for you, um, but they're also someone who comforts you. Verse 11, If two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Um, I don't remember how long ago it was, but I went camping with Matt Jackson. Luke Moore was actually there at this as well. I think Ryan Carpenter might have been there. And I don't know why we decided to do this. I'm not an outdoors kind of guy. But for whatever reason, we decided to go camping when it was like low of 25 and snowing. I was in a single-person tent that honestly was basically a body bag. Um, it snowed so much that like the guys couldn't find me the next morning. Like I was covered up in snow, and I literally thought I was going to die. I like thought I'd surely developed hypothermia. I was freezing. I could not move. And this is a picture of what the teacher is talking about here in verse 11. He says, look, the world can be like that. The world can be a cold and dark place. And what you need is someone who can come alongside you and help you warm up. Not just physically, right, but emotionally. Like, you need someone who can meet you in the cold and dark seasons of life. And that's what a friend does. They meet you in your grief. They meet you in your pain. They meet you in your misery. And they provide a level of comfort for you that you cannot get alone. Finally, he goes on to verse 12 and he says, Not only does a friend make you more productive, not only does a friend provide care and comfort, but a friend also provides protection. Verse 12 Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. How many of you in here have ever watched Shark Week? We got any Shark Week fans? Okay, awesome. You are my people. Um, I love sharks. I used to be a marine biologist whenever I was a kid. So I love sharks, but I'm also terrified by sharks. Partly because I watched Jaws um, at one point, and I was like, I don't want that to be me. By the way, uh, I just introduced my kids to Jaws, or I thought I should do that the other day. Um, like three minutes in, one of my kids says, Dad, aren't we too young to be watching this? I was like, ah, you're probably right. <laughs> and so I turned it off. Um, and so uh, 
I, I, I love sharks. I'm terrified by sharks. And, and, but I love Shark Week. And so, you know, I remember every week, you know, every year, Shark Week come on, I'd grab like some turkey jerky or something, sit there and watch. And, and there was always this, the, the shows are so intense because they're always yelling. They're like preachers. I mean, they're just like yelling at the, the camera, which makes it even more just like, ah. And there's this one show I watch. And they're testing this theory. They're like, I, I don't know where they are. They're like off the, the coast of Cape Town or something. But they're testing these great white sharks. And the host, he looks and he's like, ladies and gentlemen, I am on a boat right now off the coast of Cape Town. We've just put blood and chum in the water. As you can see, great white sharks are circling our boat. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to test a theory. And we're going to see is a single prey seal more likely to be attacked than a group of seals. It's so like immediately I'm in engaged, right? What you see next is they tie together these little rubber seal decoys. They throw them out of the boat. And then there's this little lone, you know, little lonely little rubber seal decoy that they push off and you see it go into the distance. Within a couple minutes, and I don't know how long it really took, but thank God for editing, right? Like within a couple minutes of them sending it out, you see a great white shark jump out of the water and devour this seal. And so what you have, next scene, this is the end of the little show, you have this host with this little frayed rope and this little bitty piece of like rubber, and he's like, just as we expected. He's like, if you find yourself in shark-infested waters, you are far safer if you stay together than if you go out by yourself. And then it rolls the credits. Now, I don't want to overstate the obvious, but I possibly just saved your lives. So... And not just when it comes to being in the ocean, but when it just comes to life. Because what nature is pointing to is the reality is that when you are alone, you are easy prey. And and listen, you're not just easy prey for stuff out there. You're easy prey for stuff in here. Like, yeah, you're easy prey for the world and the devil, but you're also prey to your own sinful and selfish desires that still lie inside of your heart. And guys, it is so important that we get this. Because I said earlier, nobody in here has arrived. We haven't. Like, we all face temptations every single day. Temptations that seem so small, but if we keep taking that step, we slowly but surely walk away from God and into destruction. And therefore, all of us need a friend who cares enough about us to help protect us from ourselves. Someone, listen, what that means, someone who is willing to tell you the truth even when the truth hurts. Maybe for some of you, you're like the king at the end of chapter 4. I wish I had more time to spend on this section, but there's a king in verse 13 who, quote, no longer knew how to heed a warning. Your translation might say he no longer knew how to take advice. For whatever reason, he just thought, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm too old, I'm too wise, I'm too successful. Teacher says, that man's a fool. He's a fool. And listen, I get it. Like, I don't like when people challenge me. I don't like whenever people disagree with me. But here's the thing, guys, please hear me. Love that never corrects, love that never rebukes is not love. Despite what our culture is telling you right now, love is not someone who always affirms you and agrees with you. It's not. Love is not someone who refuses to challenge you or question you. And again, like I I get why we don't want this. This is a huge temptation for me. I I love to surround myself with yes men and yes women. Like I I just want to be around nice people. 
But do you realize something? Like sometimes the nicest person in the room is the most unloving person in the room. Did you know that? Because sometimes the reason they're so nice to you is not because they want to protect you. They just don't want you to not like them. Proverbs 27 verse 15 says this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Proverbs 27 6. Again, this is Solomon teaching. He says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, why in the world would a friend ever wound you? Because a faithful friend is like a skilled doctor. A faithful friend is so close to you, they see things inside of you before you can even see it inside of yourself. And if they see something inside of you that is deadly because they love you, they will be willing to inflict a wound on you in order to help get that thing out. They will at times hurt you, but not because they hate you, but because they love you. Because they want to see you thrive. Guys, we all need friends like this. Because life is hard, because there are disappointments and difficulties, because there are pits and predators, because we all still have sin inside of us, because none of us have arrived, we need friends who are loyal and loving and empathetic and understanding, friends who are present, friends who are compassionate and courageous, who are willing to journey with us in life in the good times and the bad times. With that in mind, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to ask yourself some hard questions. It's easy in a message like this to be like, yeah, like, where's my friends at? Like, who's going to be friends like that to me, pastor? You know, as if like I I can program your friendships, by the way. Doesn't happen. And rather than doing that, and this is what our our sermon prep group, we all talked about. like, Like, this doesn't need to be one of these messages where we're just like, yeah, why is anybody good friends with me? Like, here's what I want you to do. Rather than asking, is anybody being a friend like that to me, ask yourself this, am I being a friend like that to someone else? And so here are five questions you can just ask yourself um, that maybe can help you get there. These are some questions I, I, you know, I kind of wrestled with this week myself. And so first question is, have I made friendship a priority? Have I scheduled it in? Do I make time for friendship? Do I make time for intentionally trying to be a good friend to others? Secondly, Here's how you can know if you've been a good friend to others. Have I modeled vulnerability? Guys, you cannot do relationships with robots. And so have you personally opened up your life to other people and said, here's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Other people are not going to open up to you if you don't open up to them. Third, have I approached my friendships as a consumer or a contributor? Think about the conversations you've had this past week and who have they centered on. Have you talked more than you've listened? Do you walk in thinking, man, these people better care for me, these people better comfort me, or do you look for ways to say, how can I care and comfort them? Fourth, have you had a balanced and healthy level of affirmation and correction? Some of you are all correction and no affirmation. Everything's always wrong. This person's always off. Their hearts aren't pure enough. They don't give enough. They don't blah, 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 right? They're too mean. I mean, it's just critical, 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 critical. That is wrong. Nobody wants to be a friend with someone like that. But you know what's equally as wrong? To be all affirmation and no correction. To just always walk around and be like, no, you're amazing. You really are. No, look, you're, you're, you're awesome. Like, to always do that and to never question, to never challenge, like, that's equally as bad. Like, we're called 
Right? A good friend is someone who corrects and affirms, who encourages and rebukes, who speaks the truth in love. Last question is this. Have I kept short accounts? Guys, again, because the church is more like a hospital, right, than it is like a museum for saints, like people will disappoint you. They will let you down. And here's a question. Am I quick to forgive those who let me down? Or do I kind of hold a grudge against them or I just kind of like cold shoulder them or whatever? And by the way, to be clear, forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. doesn't mean that. Forgiveness doesn't mean that when someone hurts you, you don't talk to them about it. You should talk to them about it. That's maturity, by the way, is you actually go and say, hey, what you did hurt me. But what forgiveness means is, is that you choose to stay and to serve and love despite the failures and flaws of others. Guys, this is a picture of what a good friend is like. And if we can be honest, none of us have done this perfectly. I know I haven't. All of us, I think, have failed to make friendship a priority from time to time. There are times where we have intentionally kept people at arm's length. Times where we have acted more like consumers and contributors. Times where we have failed to protect others, to comfort others, to care for others. Times where uh, we've held grudges or maybe even times where we have secretly celebrated the failures of others because of our own envy. As Luke talked about last week. And you see, this is why we have to continually come back to the gospel. It's why we have to continually look to Jesus, who is the only perfect friend who ever lived. Jesus is the only friend who ultimately can provide you with the comfort and the care and the protection that you need. He is the only one who loves you so much that before you ever even lifted a finger for him, he laid down his whole life for you. And you see, it was while Jesus was on the cross, think about this, and while he was laying down not just his comfort and his conveniences, but his very life for you, it was there on the cross that we know Jesus experienced a loneliness that hopefully you'll never have to experience. You see, on the cross, Jesus was not only rejected by man, but he was rejected by his own heavenly Father. So that now, whenever you trust in his life, death, and resurrection, you can once and for all experience a true and lasting friendship with God and with one another. See, in John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And then he says, this command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, once you receive my love, you are now called to be a conduit of my love into the lives of others. And you see, this is what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is getting at in chapter 4. In verse 12, he's been saying, two are better than one, two are better than one, two are better than one. Then in verse 12, he says, there's a cord of three strands. Well, who's the third? He's just talking about two, 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 three. Well, he's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the third strand. Jesus is the indestructible thread by which all of our spiritual friendships are held together. Guys, the truth is, if you want to have lasting friendships, please hear me, we're done this morning. If you want to have lasting friendships, indestructible friendships, your friendship cannot be built around anything other than Jesus Christ. If a friendship, I'm talking about now within marriage or anything, any friendship, if it's built around work, as soon as work is over, the relationship is over. If it's built around just your personality and your preferences, well, guess what? Personality and preferences change. Heard someone say recently to her husband, you're not the man I married. I'm like, well, of course he's not the man you married. That's impossible. We all change. You can't not change. You, you'll leave here changed in some way. 
If you try to build friendship around kids' sports or a stage of life, and listen, your friendships are going to fade away whenever that stage of life fades away. If friendship is built on temporary things, it will not last, but if it is built around Jesus and his kingdom, it will not leave. And so, let me just say this for the record. This doesn't mean that you can't like, go to a ball game together. With your it doesn't mean you just have to sit around and talk about Jesus all the time. Now, I do, think, I do think spiritual friendship should always go back to Jesus. I think if you have a true friendship built around Christ, like, you can't go very long without talking about Jesus together. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong with like, going to watch a ball game together, riding bikes together, or like, you know, eating together, talking about your favorite you know, episode of Ted Lasso and laughing about it or whatever else. Like, all those things are great, but man, Jesus is greater. He alone is the eternal source of life and love and joy and fulfillment and acceptance. He is the true and perfect friend who will always listen, who will always give the appropriate word, who will protect you and comfort you and care for you. The one who, despite your sins, failures, and flaws, promises, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you.